Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant. M. Emily Bowen here and I work in recruitment and customer experience. Today on the show, we have Matt Church, who's the founder of Thought Leaders and the creator of The Leadership Landscape, a series of experiences designed for leaders. Em and I are both just so obsessed with this episode. Heads up, you'll need to stop, pause, rewind, because Matt drops some truth bombs about interviews, about finding and discovering your career fulfillment, and how you identify your area or zone of thought leadership. This is the idea or genius that you have that you need to share with the world. Enjoy the episode. I'm going to let you speak in a moment, Matt, but before I do that, you told us when we met in preparation for this that you weren't going to be doing podcasts anymore and somehow we've convinced you to be here. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Last year was the year of no, uh, and this year is the year of yes. So we're, oh, we're in a really good space, and it's a pleasure to be here with both of you and your audience. Great. We're very excited to have this time today, and we're going to drill into a lot of different areas. And Matt, I would kind of just want to kick off by getting to know you a little bit. So tell us a bit about your kind of career story. Who are you? What are you passionate about? Uh, yeah, it's my least favorite topic. Uh, what you'll what you'll find, like, I'm, so just for everybody, I'm uh, 53. I'm I've got two kids, an 18 year old and a 20 year old, and Lexi and I have been together for 30 years. Uh, she was my teacher, so it was like a Mrs. Robinson uh, sort of experience. And when I was 21, we started dating. Uh, so that's How that's weird. kind of just just position everybody where where I'm at. Both my kids kids have cars, and there's a completely different uh, change of space. My world used to be dictated by their activities and now it's, you know, not. So, so all of that. Uh, when I was really, really young, I got or the best I can, the way I can say it, I was enraptured by this notion. And the notion was, is there a way that I could think, read and teach as a way of making money? For the rest of my life, could could I? Is there a career called that? And I don't want to teach kids in schools, and I don't want to be a professor at uni. What might it be? And pretty much every career iteration I've had, if you said, "What's the golden thread that runs through them all?" It's the answer to that notion. And there's a philosopher called Alan Watts um, on YouTube. You can listen to so many cool YouTube messages and 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 old seminars that he's done. But he's really famous for making the distinction between um, a job and a vocation. And he says. When you're in your vocation, you, ever, you never need a vacation. 
And that's so true for me, like because I, I get paid to think and read and, and teach and share and speak and all those sorts of things, I, I just never need, I, I never need a holiday. Um, when I'm on holidays, I'm reading. I, I when, Whether I'm in London or the subways of Tokyo or Tijuana or in Barcelona or whatever, wherever it is that I am, I'm reading and I'm thinking and I'm waiting for the moment to either be a student who receives some information from an encounter with a bus driver through to someone who might be on a podcast like this sharing information in some way and I guess in a nutshell that's me I, I I am absolutely blessed to be living that kind of life and you know for some people I want to say it's like the third choice you can have a job you can start a business or you could do this thing uh, that I do which is sort of the the thinking teaching sharing and reading thing we call it a practice uh, but but that's that's kind of my life does that help that really helps. And you're not a salesy guy. I'll, I'll say that for you. But I just feel like that's the best sales pitch ever. All of a sudden, I'm going, <laughs> I want that job. I want to uh, think, read and teach. <laughs> and how did well, you find that? Va- like you you, say, you mentioned job or, or vacation. How did you like find that mix? Because but, I but First of all, I can't, I can't let Emily's comment go by, Shell. So we got, we got to, <laughs> I got I to double click on that. Um, you know what? I think you're right. And I think the reason we don't like selling is because people are trying to convince us of something. And I reckon when you stand in your conviction about something, you never have to sell another day in your life. You really just create invitations where you go, hey, this is what I'm doing. If you want a party, let's Mm -hmm. go over this place and do it. And I think that too many people, there's like a dark side to sales where people are manipulative and controlling and and um, they're taking away our agency. They're taking away our sense of choice. That's like the old school of sales. And I think what you're actually doing is you never sell anything, uh, but people do buy things. Like we're all happy to buy all day long. And, and I reckon that flip for those of us who aren't formally in sales roles, but we are trying to grow businesses, careers, and we are trying to make an impact. I think that's switching from being someone who sells to someone who who creates the conditions in which people buy is such a really useful distinction because you can have integrity, you can have authenticity, you can sit in your power, and, and it's never a rejection. It's just, look, I'm having a party on Friday night, and if you can't come, that's cool, but it's going to be rad, so come along. Yeah, um, and I'm going to have know. a good time, so yeah. whether you're there or not, I'll be there. Yeah, 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 yeah. and I really Absolutely. hope you're there, but if it's yeah. not for you, I totally get it, you know. So, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sense. so I'm sorry, Shell. What were you saying? Well, I, now I've kind of gone on your train and thought, thinking, okay, let's put our, ourselves in the shoes of our listener today. They're going for a job. And what you just said about sales is like creating the condition for someone to buy rather than trying to push something. One of the things we see when we're at interview is we're that thing of selling yourself, but you're saying something totally different there. So how do you become more invitational in like, I suppose, connect? Because I guess what you're saying is quite different. I'm thinking about that as someone's going for an interview. Well, it's how do you pull people into you as opposed to trying to push yourself onto them perhaps? Totally. And the interview is such a great example, right? Um, everybody knows if, if you're good and you've done the work and you've earned the right, you know, then you're interviewing them. Do you know what I mean? Like you're going, what kind of place is this? What kind of place is this? Do you have the values that I dig? And, and, And you can sit across a panel where there's three people firing questions at you. 
and that's cool. There's a mo- and I'm gonna you know there are three moments to every interview, and these moments you want to look out for them. These three moments is true in every sales environment as well. And if you're tuned in for these moments, you sort of get the dance of the interview. But whatever you feel that you everyone's looking at you and that you're the one that has to come up with a great answer and you've rehearsed your great answers like, hey, what are your weaknesses? And you go, uh, I tend to work too hard and overcommit to the company because you've heard that that's a really good answer. I go, no, no, it's no. It's no, a no, terrible no. answer. It's a shit answer. No, what you want to do is you, you want to look for these three moments, right? And they don't happen on any kind of timeline. So they're, they're a bit like naughty. They happen whenever they damn well want. So the first one is the moment where you want the job. Now that can happen before the interview, but it, it can happen in the interview. There's this moment where you go, no, I really want this. And what when that happens, you want to say that. Do you know what I mean? It's like you want to put it out there knowing that you could be rejected. It's like, hey, I want to, I want to hang out with you. Um, this is something I want to do. Uh, and I'm just going to put it out there, you know, whether you pick it up or not, that's what I'm putting out. So there's that moment where you decide you want it, right? The, the second moment is when they decide they want you. And that's the one we miss because we're so full of the blarjang, the noise and the internal dialogue of am I good enough or am I an imposter? Will I be found out? We're so caught up in that internal dialogue that we don't often spot the moment where they go, yeah. And so we talk too much and we over-talk nervously into that moment. But it's the moment where they look and you can generally see the panellists will look at each other and go, they'll nod. Or you'll get, or they'll do this. They'll go, okay. And, and it's almost visceral. Like it'll be some kinesthetic thing that happens where it's almost like the old game of Tetris. I don't know if any of you are all too young to remember it, but I remember when the we best know thing Tetris. Not, oh, you so do not. <laughs> if I was to hold up a cassette tape and a pencil, would you know the relationship between the two? I would actually with the um, tape. Oh, like you, you, you've heard that <laughs> you turn it through. Because <laughs> a cassette tape is basically a playlist you can't change, right? So, <laughs> anyway, the, se- the second moment, that moment where they've bought you, you want to shut up because it's this sacred moment where they're kind of the, what they say next is then the third moment. And the third moment is when you both agree what happens next, right? So, those three moments are you want the job, they want you. And then the third moment is when you start to construct how that's going to look moving forward. They don't always happen in the interview. You know, like you might decide you want the job before the interview and the terms and, and the deal of the employment might happen post-interview in a second follow-up. But those three moments are the moments where we commit to each other. And I think if you understood jobs uh, and sales as moments of commitment, uh, not like you'd, you'd actually go, it's, it's a very different game. And so it's, it's like a commitment ceremony. And I always look for those three moments to kind of explore that in either interviews or sales. And it's kind of cool because you get to have some swag and you're not like desperate and needy, which is very unattractive. So. I often think it's like dating. It's the, you know, so many times through recruitment, which is my trade, it's this idea, you can just, you can draw so many um, similarities between the two and, you know, that's a whole other podcast, but uh, (laughs) it is quite fascinating. And I think it just comes down to, you've got humans interacting with each other. And if, if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone say, I stayed in that job or I enjoy, what do I love most about my work? It's the people. It's totally that. So that, yeah, that relationship in life with your workplace and with the people at your workplace, it's no different to any other relationship. And so that interview process is the dating, I guess. There's a Stanford study that talks about the fact that people don't leave jobs, they leave people, they leave their managers. And um, 
that's so true. You can be in what you conceived as your dream job, but when it's got a nightmare colleague, it's like, man, I just got to get out of here because you're dealing with a narcissist or someone who's just got like some power trip uh, or who just doesn't, like my whole definition of, of good leadership is not someone who's great. It's someone who has the ability to bring out the greatness of the people around them. And so leaders as mentors is such an important piece. And sometimes it doesn't matter if the job looks good on paper. If you don't feel like you're growing and getting the opportunity to, because high potentials, uh, Boston Consultant did a study of the, the five drivers for high potential people or talent. And it's this, you know, everyone wants pay and everyone wants position. But in a high potential, someone who's driving their own career, they're like the fourth and the fifth drivers. And the, the drivers that, uh, that are more powerful are things like self-directed learning as the third driver. Recognition of individual achievement is the second driver. And that the first driver is to work on projects that build my portfolio. You know, do, does my LinkedIn resume look good? And, you know, if I can work on the iPod, uh, if I can work on the AirPods, if I can work on the iPhone, if I can work on Google Earth while I'm working for you, I may not work for you forever, but that project becomes something that I take away as an artifact of meaning that my life mattered and that my work mattered. And I think if you went into job interviews like that, you're not getting a job. What you're doing is you're collecting a portfolio of projects that show that you're on vocation and that what you do matters, you know. One of M's concepts actually that we've talked about on the podcast and done some webinars on is this thing called your career as a business. I don't know if you want to speak to it because I I love what you're saying there about building your portfolio. Yeah, it's um, you've reminded me of that one. I wasn't sure if you're going to talk about that or career self-reliance, but I guess this idea of your career as a business for me is about an individual, I guess, being the CEO and the employee of their own career. And so, you know, we start to talk about, well, when you're assessing yourself, are you actually... The, you know, are you an employee that you would want to have if you were the boss? And are you being a leader of yourself that you would want to have if you were the employee? And this, it all comes back to a sense of ownership. I think so much of what we talk about is this idea of owning your own career. And that certainly doesn't mean, to your point, Matt, that you turn up to a job interview purely there for, well, what can I get out of this? Because as we know, being a good employee and a good uh, leader is giving it and I like the way you haven't said it on while we've been recording yet but you often say to us you're here in service Mm. and I think that if we can all uh, sort of have that mantra in our mind or just reflect on that and go well how do we turn up as a leader or as an employee or just as a human in our life and in our workplace and think what can we give Mm. rather than what can we get? Then back to where this conversation sort of started around sales, I think you're more likely to pull people in with that rather than have them feel like you're pushing something or pushing yourself onto them. Hey, I I realise books are old school. Um, Yet there's still some arbitrage for writing a book. And M, and I can't wait to hear your show, um, Career Self-Reliance is a book. And if so, ah. all we got to do is we just got to put 12 chapters, 5,000 words yeah. each, and we're done. So hurry up. Okay, good. It's on the list. And okay. your career as a business is a book. And I encourage, you know, experts, if you like, to think of have, what are the series of books you're going to write. You may never write them, but it's really worth conceiving them because I can see thought leadership in you in those two things. And uh, it's almost like, um, what else? You know, so I'm like, so because I'll, I'll get seduced. So the mantra, I love the idea of, I love the idea of mantra too. And the mantra that kind of sits to this vocational drive that I'm so committed to 
is in the word agency that you both just sort of sort of highlighted them because I think any time we get to increase sovereignty for ourselves and others um, and any time we have agency or a sense of control, our happiness, our peace, our fulfilment, our engagement, our productivity, our performance, our work ethic, all that goes up. And if we're in environments that strip our agency, take away our sovereignty and remove our freedoms, then we all start to rant and rail, right? So, and rightly so. So I think the, the mantra that uh, I encourage has three parts to it. And we were just highlighting one part, but it'd be remiss not to add the other two to give it a full sort of sort of holistic vibe. And I, and I think the order of these is critically important because you talked about self, you're almost talking about beware of the ego of turning up and trying to take care of only yourself. And you were kind of highlighting, highlighting that. So here's the, here's the mantra and it's in three parts. Our goal is to be fully self-expressed. And that's such an interesting phrase. You want to go, okay, part one, fully self-expressed. Part two, in service to others. Because if you're fully self-expressed, you could just be a tosser. You know, you're just the person who's like, it's all about me, right? And if you're in service to others, you're just a doormat. You know, you're someone who gets taken advantage of. So we need to really marry those first two parts, which is when you're self-expressed, and if you're interested in the philosophy behind this, it's at the heart of what's called classical libertarianism, which is I get to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't limit you doing whatever you want as opposed to anarchists, which is I do whatever I want and to hell with you, right? So I get to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't limit whatever you want. So fully self-expressed in service to others and then rewarded for the contributions we make. Now, if that's not a, a, you know, a fulfilling career, I don't know what is. You know what I mean? It's me growing and developing and sharing and contributing. Uh, it's, it's me working to make the world a better place for those, my, me and mine and those around us. And it's being rewarded well for the contribution. And when any one of those is missing, that's when you think you want to leave a job. Is you go, I'm not self-expressed here. I'm not in service. I'm just making money for the shareholders. And you then come down to the bottom and go, and I'm not being paid right. You know, and money is the lowest form of reward for contribution, mm. but it, it's a starting point, right? So... Yeah. That seeing it visually in my mind as you're talking about fully self-expressed in service of others rewarded for your contribution. And I think it, it's reminding me of a job I used to do a couple of years, like a while ago, where I think I was fully in service of, of the mission of the organization and definitely rewarded, but I wasn't fully self-expressed, Matt. And, and I, I think what ended up, what I saw ended up happening is the things like burnout started to creep up or just exhaustion or, or any of those things. So let, can we start at the fully self-expressed part? Because for me, that was a real challenging yeah. journey to go, who am I? And, and what yeah. does me fully self-expressed actually look like? Yeah. How did you find that out? Uh, so um, I'm 12 years old and I'm in a family of five kids. And I'm the fourth kid. So there's four boys and a girl. And Elizabeth, my sister, died when she was 21 of ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. And that ice bucket challenge that people do is to raise money Mm. and awareness for Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. It's a kind of MS, if you like. Uh, So four boys and a girl. And uh, I'm 12. And an Amway rep comes into my house. And my father's an entrepreneur, a businessman. He runs an air conditioning factory with 50 sheet metal workers that he employs. So the metal workers union is like his nemesis. He stands in a pinstripe (laughs) suit in a factory with a one-way window looking down onto the factory. And my brothers and I, our job was to clean the factory floor uh, on weekends and to mow the lawns and to wash the vans and all this kind of stuff. 
So my dad understands business and the way multi-level marketing works quite often, particularly back in those days, is someone would say, hey, I've got a business proposition. I thought I'd come and talk to you. And then they come in and they try and get you to sell your friends soap, detergent and all sorts of other things. So my dad grabs this person by the collar effectively and chucks them out of the house after coming in with a whiteboard doing this sales pitch. And I remember we were like the Von Trapp family in The Sound of Music where we'd all be sitting on the stairs um, as people came and went from the house. And <laughs> And in this case, I was the only one standing on the stairs. And this lady, I remember her name, Karen, um, is she said, geez, your dad's a dickhead. This is what she says to me. <laughs> um, and I go, okay. And she goes, but uh, you look like you, you want to learn. And she gave me a set of cassette tapes um, and they were duplicated. So the way cassette tapes work is you would have a master, a metal master, hopefully, and you would then copy, copy, copy. So these look like sixth-generation copied uh, tapes. And she'd copied Brian Tracy's Psychology of Achievement. And as a 12-year-old boy in a pretty dysfunctional upbringing, I listened to these audio tapes over and over again. Fast forward, I'm 46 and I'm in Atlanta and Brian Tracy is the keynote speaker at a conference I'm speaking at. I tell this story from stage and he's in the audience listening. He cancels the rest of his day and he sits with me on a lounge while this conference is going on. And I realised that I flew Atlanta not to get paid to speak, but I flew to Atlanta to spend six hours sitting with one of my heroes um, and mm -hmm. learn firsthand. You know, you go, that's a 12-year-old boy and a 46-year-old man. And I can't even remember what your question was, but my answer to it is... I was just thinking, fully self-expressed. Fully self-expressed self is what it was because he, he started to talk about... It was classic personal development. And for me, self-expression originally was personal development. And I think that's a good place to start. But then it transfers into personal identity development into like personal branding. And then it moves from personal branding to self-authoring. And you can start Googling what is self-authoring. It's kind of when you don't want to talk about self-esteem because it's not about confidence, but you want to talk about creating your own life, you get into the field of self-authoring. So it's so much bigger than, you know, Brian Tracy, Tony Robbins and things like that. And then, then, it, then you move into self-awareness, which is, you know, the mystic traditions, the, you know, the, the consciousness, enlightenment stories, meditation, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think that's probably the journey of being fully self-expressed is moving a journey of pronouns from little I, like I'm not good enough, through to look at all these others, like the you, and then ultimately into this universality of we. And I know that's a bit out there, but but the, the journey of being fully self-expressed is a journey of pronouns from little I to big I. And you can almost see that as concentric rings, you know. And I guess as you're growing as a person, who you are changes and evolves. So mm. self-expression for me, you know, five years ago might have looked like quite different to then who exactly. I am now after becoming a mom or any of those things that are kind of catalytic in your identity. Have you found over time, looking back over, I guess, your career, what have been some of those moments where you, uh, you've had those catalysts for learning more about who you are? Uh, it's such a deep question. And uh, we could spend 20 minutes or a whole podcast on the answer, which seems true of all the things we're talking about. So it's almost like we're laying out a, a buffet for everybody where we all tap us, you know, they were going, there's, you can have this or you can have that. Um, I think you've, you'd like the, the answer is in the question. So the catalytic moments you can identify if you did. Uh, and what I'd suggest as a practical exercise is that anybody who's interested sits down with a piece of paper and or an iPad or a Surface Pro and creates a timeline. And it's just a horizontal line. And you're going to ask yourself three questions. In any incident that's ever happened in your life, good or bad, 
you ask yourself the question, what happened? And you almost don't need to document that because you were there. But the second question, and this is where you move from like life happening to you to you taking control of your life, um, and that's the critical moment for everybody. It's the moment of what I define as the leadership moment. It's the moment where you take responsibility for what happens in your life versus abdicate that responsibility to society, parents, upbringing, um, you know, chemistry or whatever it is that you choose to to make the persecutor and you the victim of. So you stop being the victim of your life and you start to author your life. So the three questions are what happened, what did you make it mean and what is it actually about? And that you can do this with negative events and it's a thing that's documented called timeline therapy. You can do it with positive events as well, though. Like you don't have just to put it into the challenging parts of life. You can put it into the positive and aspirational parts of life as well. It's the same process. And what you're doing is you're abstracting above the experience and starting to go, so what is that about for me? And if you do that enough times with enough kind of detachment so you're not crying every time you remember the moment, what, what ends up is it stops being therapy and what it starts to become is utility. And so you stop reliving it and you start actually going, so what, what do I want to make that mean? And just because I made it mean that when I was 12, that doesn't mean that's true. And this is what you were talking about, Shell, about the idea of over time your sense of identity or the meaning that you put on who you are and how you're turning up can change. And what I'm interested in is the themes. And so it's a, it's a, a part of science called pattern recognition which has actually come out of big data uh, and it's really come to life which is i can look at someone's uh netflix usage and get an algorithm of the kind of genre you like but that might be about the phase i'm in so i remember when my sister died my mum went into she found benefit in in wrestling so like in wwf wrestling and it was like just because it's so inane and so ridiculous and so if the algorithm said she's into wrestling i go no she's not she was into wrestling for the five years after my sister's death um but that algorithm is like you've got to let that go netflix i'm no longer interested in that and yeah so i think you con- when you command the context of your life you're no longer a victim of the content of your life and that's what this fully self-expressed is the journey of pronouns and starting to see the patterns that you're repeating carl jung famously said until you make your unconscious conscious you will go through life repeating patterns and call it fate and what that is is that's the message to go yeah hey 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 what figure out what's going on why do you keep why does this keep happening to you and then go, okay, take control of that. And that's what fully self-expressed is, where you start to go from just simply experiencing your life as a series of events to actually owning the meaning and rewriting your life. Oh, I just love that. We could just stop yeah. right there and go, let, like that. Uh, yeah, uh, that idea of um, so this question of what meaning did I attribute to that essentially is so powerful and that is absolutely a takeaway that I will um, hold on to out of this conversation that's just going to be ringing in my ears. I also started to think as you were speaking, Matt, about this idea of, um, so when you mentioned making the unconscious conscious, I'm always very mindful that typically our brains like to ask ourselves questions that we already know the answer to. Totally. And our brains don't necessarily like to ask ourselves questions that we need to dig deeper to find the answer to. Um, so, and I guess that goes to things like neural pathways or muscle memory, so to speak, of our minds and, and what just comes easily and what is a, a cognitive shortcut for us. 
But as, as we do talk about this idea of um, maybe that victim mentality, which I think is just a horrible and ugly term, it but it's there. Oh, uh, I started to also think, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on what other themes do you see in people that hold them back at, in their career or hold them back at work? Well, first of all, I love that you've double-clicked on cognitive distortions and um, I think that's super cool. One of my favourite thought leaders uh, is a lady called Annie Duke and Professor Annie Duke has written a book called Thinking in Bets and I just posted it into the chat. So whether Nathan or one of your team awesome. wants to share that in your notes, they should. Such a good multitasker. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the process is, uh, so she she. Believe it or not, like you want to go, I need America, right? So what are you, Annie? She goes, I'm a decision scientist, which is essentially the study of how we make decisions. And I'm interested in not only how do we individually make decisions, but how do we collectively make decisions as a society? And I think what you want to do, you know, you, where, whatever stage of life you're at, you want to first of all understand your decision-making process and this is where we get confirmation bias, like we see the things we want to see. This is where we see um, all kinds of bias, uh, you know, and one of them is all or nothing thinking, which is the person who who goes, I'm going to, the way I'm, because I know we're about, you know, wealth and money and income and careers and things like that. So buy a lottery ticket by all means, but don't make that your plan for financial independence you know, because the statistics don't make sense. So that's the all thinking. You know, I don't have to work and make a living because I'm buying lottery tickets. And it's kind of like giving up, right? It's like not having a responsibility. And the nothing thinking is no, there's no chance I'm going to win the lotto. There's, I have no ability to influence my my systems or, or my business, so I'm just going to give up. And, you know, Al Gore um, in the movie Inconvenient Truth, the documentary, the first one. He finishes it. I love the credits of movies sometimes more than the movie. And just as the credits roll, he's got this quote, which is a Somalian prayer, and it says, pray for water but start walking, which reminds me of the Islamic um, sort of Sufism, which is pray to Allah but type your camel. And it's, it's you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you've got to have this, you've got to have this, um, this so anyway. On, on the things that mess us up is I think it's the way we think. And I think Annie Duke, like she, you could almost listen to her, uh, you could read her books and you'd get this really good vibe for how humans make bad decisions. Her brother is a poker champion and she watched the way he played poker, poker. and basically poker is a game of playing the other person and how they're making decisions. Now, I'm not a poker player, but listening to her describe it as a professor of decision theory, I think we get to the heart of the mistakes that individuals make. And it's basically our view of the world's probably flawed. And, and if you can sort of start from that space, you're then more open to receive kind of the growth you need out of moments. Do you know what I mean? And, and I don't know if that helps him, but that's that's. I, I reckon a reference is sometimes better than an answer. So Annie Duke's book, Unreal, and her stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll add that to the to my to read list. Absolutely. <laughs> I think sometimes as humans, along that line of thinking, we also we give ourselves more credit than we're due when it comes to being mind readers and being able yeah. to yeah, 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 yeah. predict the future. We just spend so much time thinking that we know where the other person is coming from or why they've made that decision, when in reality 
there's probably a hundred other alternatives we can think of and an infinite number that we can't think of. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things that I work really hard in my mind to try and remind myself of when I start to feel some sort of tension or emotion or that physical reaction to a situation. And that's definitely one of them for me. <laughs> Same. I think we, these two, I'm not, I'm not sure they go away, Em. Like, I, like, no, I, I think, I'm pedalling pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, and but so am I, right? So, like, I had... I just had you just yesterday, right? So 53-year-old, you know, by every definition successful. But, <laughs> you know, yesterday I noticed I have this pattern of seeing the world as for me or against me. Are you on my side or are you not? And there's no way the world is that. There's no way the world is that. And yet that damn little trigger, that little distortion still trips me up. And I think, I think just I think all you need is just to become aware that you are not your thoughts, um, that you are not your internal dialogue. And this goes to Shelley's thing about timelines and, and identity and who you're becoming because um, there's, there's what you're doing, there's who you're becoming, but there's also who you're being. And, and I, there wasn't really the opening a minute ago, but, but it's worth saying it here. If I said to you, what's your first memory? And you'll go blah, 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 blah. And I go, okay, can you, when you think about that, the essential knowing or awareness that you were that five-year-old, is that any different to when you were 15? And you go, no. Nah. Is it any different to when you were 20? And you go, no. Nah. And what about when you're 30? You go, no. Nah. What about when you're 50? You go, no. Nah. It's exactly the same awareness. It's that ageless part of you, which is, you know, in, in the freedom teachings and the wisdom teachings, they say this, when you're aware that you're aware, you're free. And what we're talking about is just become aware of your patterns. Just become aware of the stuff that trips you up. And it doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means you want to just pause a little bit. You know, Dr. Stephen Covey said this so well in his book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He said, when you can pause between stimulus and response, you're starting to take agency over your life. And I don't think it's that we're not triggered. It's more that they just have, they're almost, um, they have less uh, ob objective quality, they're less real, they're less concrete, they don't have a hold over you, they're not demons. You just sort of go, oh, look mm. at that, um, I've, I've got the for and against going, mm. you know, <laughs> is that, yeah. and you sort of ask yourself the question, is that true? Um, another quick reference for your listeners, this is a lady called Byron Katie and she's, her work is called thework.com and it's basically a questioning process you go through to question whether your thoughts are true or not, and super powerful. She's amazing. She's like this, she just feels like this really wise nana who, uh, you know, you see her on videos with prisoners and all kinds of stuff, just taking them through this four-step question process. And it's super useful for going, hey, is that thought true? Um, maybe it's not. Mm. One of the, uh, as you're talking about, uh, there's what you do, who you who you are being and then who you're becoming. So we've got these three kind of things happening. One of the things that I've seen a lot in the workplace is when say you make someone redundant and a lot of people go through a redundancy process, horrible process. Horrible. Uh, uh, one of the things that I think can impact, as you mentioned before, Matt, how someone responds to a stimulus or, or to a situation uh, is when their identity is really interlinked with the job. So if we look at that circle of what you're doing, how do you, uh, what's your experience with people connecting maybe rightly or wrongly their identity with the work that they do or the job that they're performing? It's natural that you would, but you are not your thoughts 
and you are not what you do. You are the essential quality that has always been you in everything you do. Now, this is the teaching of um, uh, the Advaitic tradition, which is kind of pre-Hindu. And I, I don't identify with any religion. It's just I'm, I'm interested in the schools of thought and how useful they're not. And in the area of identity, that's this is probably one of the best you know, ancient teachings. So you're not your thoughts. You are the person that has your thoughts. You observe thoughts. Um, thoughts are like, you know, fish in an ocean. You know, you're the ocean and the fish come up and they disappear. And actually, when you look at thoughts, you realize they're really, they're, they're chaotic. They just come and go. And they're just like, where did you come from? You know, go away. And when you can create a subject-object relationship with your thoughts, what you start realizing is you are not a what you think. Equally, you're not what you feel. Um, and so once you get that sense of orientation, you suddenly go, and I'm not what I do. And you start to find a sense of power in who you really are, not all of those phenomenal expressions of who you are, which is thoughts, feelings and activities, right? So, okay, so that's, that's out there a little bit and it's sort of useful, sort of not. George Clooney did a movie called Up in the Air, which talks about this redundancy process. It's kind of cool to watch. And I remember back in the 80s, I had the opportunity to work in Cessnock, which is a sort of a country town up in, in the vineyard region of Hunter Valley in New South Wales here in Australia. It's up near, up near us. Yeah, okay. <laughs> two well, cool, Newcastle cool, cool. girls. We know it well. <laughs> oh, Newey girls. Well, I'm a Newey boy. Yeah, uh, there so. you go. So the thing, uh, there's long-term unemployed in Cessnock and I was working uh, in social work. And so these are people who are multi-generationally unemployed. And so the idea of going to uni or the idea of having a job or the idea of owning your house is just not something that three or four generations of people in your lineage have ever done. And so you just don't get to experience that you could get a job and that you could pay off the house and that you could have investments or you could achieve financial freedom by, you know, your 40s or, or sooner. You know, they, that's just not even viable. And yet for many other Australians it is. So you talk about does the system keep you down? Um, and a little bit it does because what we were trying to do was interrupt that sort of long-term unemployment. And in the movie Up in the Air, like they fire a 1,000 people but they let them work in a co-working space where they can photocop their resumes and go to work every day because it turns out that, that the momentum of going to work is what's useful as opposed to the work you're actually doing. Um, so one of the things we teach is for people to like leave work and become consultants but what ends up happening is they don't have a structure to go to work in, to identify themselves in. They don't have an office. They don't have co-workers. They don't have, you know, Christmas and birthday cakes. They don't have Christmas parties, all those sort of things. And so what they've got to do is they've got to engineer that for themselves. And this is why co-working spaces are working as people go into this sort of free agent model um, or, you know, what Richard Florida talked about in a book, you know, 15 years ago called The Rise of the Creative Class. And... And essentially, it's like the structures around you support your success. So I don't think it's about identity, but I think it is about structure. And so what happens is you want to look at the structures that gave you that identity rather than be attached to the identity. Uh, and it's kind of like working out at home is really hard. Working out at a gym is easier. Working out at a gym with a trainer is easier again because in each one of those cases, you're surrounding yourself with a structure that helps you do something. Um, and I think 
So I think the focus on identity is true. That's how we sort of diagnose it. We go, oh, shit, I've got an identity crisis because I don't work anymore. But what you actually want to do is you've got a structure crisis, not an identity crisis. Uh, and what you want to do is put yourself in structures um, that support where you want to go. Jim Rohn used to famously say, he was Tony Robbins' mentor, he used to famously say that you become the the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And when I think back to Cessnock and the long-term multi-generational unemployed and what we're talking about around redundancy and the like, I think there's something really powerful in this, um, really powerful. Move from identity to structure and what you'll do is you'll hack your life and no and it's, it's almost like, do you know how results rewrite your story? So you've got a story of yourself that says, I don't exercise. And then you go exercise for 12 weeks and you go, huh, maybe I do. And so the activity and the results completely change the narrative you have around who you are and who, how you're turning up. And just that the structure provides the momentum. I love what you said about momentum, Matt, of, of how do we find that? I guess it's that flywheel concept of um, mm. Jim Collins as well, of like how do you fast track that? So if you're, you're bouncing back from, say, redundancy or something where you've created some, in some ways, artificially, it might feel you're creating structure, but that then propels you forward towards that next opportunity. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Maybe if we can shift gears a little bit, something I'd love to speak on is this idea of communication. So... I mean, where do I take that word from there? There's so many places we could mm. go. Thought leadership is such a big part of what you um, mm. know, Matt. But also in in so many scenarios, in all these scenarios we've been speaking about, right back to when we were talking about job interviews, mm. I just have such a belief in communication. And Shell in particular, you dobbed me in earlier. So if I dob you in, <laughs> you, um, you're often turning up and talking about if there's a problem, I mean, I'm putting it very simply, but if there's a problem... Let's just start by having a conversation. And so while I've got the brains trust here, yeah. I'd love to start down that path of like thought. The book that I would write if we're talking about mm. books yes. would be Have the Damn Conversation. Totally. Just have it. Yeah, it's called Just Just Go There. Have the Damn Conversation. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's it. 100%. So how do you have conversations that matter? Because some of these things are high stakes when we're talking yeah, yeah, about yeah. in the workplace 
in a way that like, because even talking to you now, both of us are like leaning forward. If everyone could see us, they'd see us sitting on the edge of our seat. There's a lot of like, hand action while we're all talking as well. Too. We're getting excited. Me too. I'm, I'm <laughs> so, so you've too. got this gift, Matt, of communicating with influence. How do we do that? Well, first of all, the reason we're doing this is if we're having a coherent conversation where three people are turning up with good intentions. And when three people turn up or more or one or two, people, when you turn up in good intention um, and in good faith, not as bad actors, so it's not an argument, you actually start to have a coherent conversation. I think great podcasts uh, are basically gatherings of coherence. So there's, there's a lot of words in that. Um, there's two, two paths you, that we could respond to in this. One of them is to sort of double click on M's call out of you shell around, you know, just go, just go there, you know, or go there, have the damn, just have the damn conversation. Such a good book title. Can't wait to see the outline of that in about four weeks time, super mum. Oh, okay. I'll get that to you. <laughs> go on, super mum. <laughs> you've got two kids under five, um, actually two yeah. kids under three. Let's, let's be real. Mm. Um, so take the pressure off yourself. But, 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 and I think this is one of the ways to get really into life, by the way, is to go, if I, if I were to write a book, what would I write? Now, you never have to write them, but geez, write the title for me, write the subtitle for me, write the promise, which is the back cover, and give me the table of contents. Just give me bullet point, like 12 chapters. And then I go, and if you can be bothered, write a thousand words. Now, if you were going to share your thoughts on what matters and you wanted to be an influencer or what I call a thought leader, because I think influencers might be people who work out in gyms and try on clothing, right? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So this concept of an influencer or a thought leader, I'd almost want to say to anybody, like, you've got a book in you. Can you blog on that? And then when you've got your next book in you, can you blog on that? And when people say, I don't know what I would do a podcast on, I don't know what I would do a blog on, I go do that. Because you can share what you're eating and you can share what you're drinking and you can share how good your life is. And I go, that's all well and good, but could you actually share something that might enrich my life? And what you'll do is you'll find you may not have the biggest following in the world, but you'll have an engaged following. Um, and I almost encourage everybody to do this as a, a project alongside your career. Um, it gives you colour, meaning, it gives you significance, it gives you the opportunity to grow and contribute and you'll find, even if you don't get paid for it, it's such a useful place to park your insights, your awareness and share them with others because when you learn something for yourself, it dies with you. But when you learn something and you share it with other people, it, it becomes somewhat greater. What, what I also love about what you, you challenged there, M, when you were sort of pointing out and calling out Shell is this idea of communication. And anybody on the, on the audience or on the podcast who's listening and has uh, studied law and read their law degree, there's a lecture where you get taught what, what discourse is and that discourse has kind of three trajectories to it. Um, and it has the, you know, I symbolically think of them as an exclamation mark, bullet points and a question mark. So the first is you're taught that in communication you can be declarative. So I can say uh, orange is green and as that declaration, what it'll do is it'll cleave a room where a bunch of people will go, no, orange is orange and others will go, no, orange is green and then others will go, no, orange is blue. And so a declaration is where you conscript, like people buy into an idea, but it's also where you cleave a room. So I think in communication, just be aware of the telliness, how telly you are. Like I tell people, tell people, tell people. 
The second thing you learn, so declaration is one. The second one you learn is instruction, and that's the bullet point one, right? So it's about if you do this and you do this and you do this, and it's like a three-step process. So you can be very instructional in your communication style. Um, but the third is that you can is the question mark, right? And it's like so we've got uh, declaration, instruction, and questioning, and that dialogue or discourse goes through these three kind of directions, if you like, and. I find that someone who has the ability to access all three is a more effective communicator and someone who is stuck in one of those channels um, is going to be less effective. And so your job is to like kind of be aware of what your preferences are and maybe develop capability and competency in, in the ones that you're not. So it's really much an exclamation mark, bullet points, or a question mark are kind of the three symbols I use for declaration, instruction, and questioning and being making sure that your ideas can be delivered in those three ways. Um, but I'm not sure what you wanted to talk about with communication. Oh, look, I was happy just to throw the word out there because I know I thought you might have an opinion on it and some <laughs> thoughts on it. And I know that we certainly did. Um, it seems to be that actually, I think we were recording an episode recently and I, I, it should go live before this one does. But even if it didn't, to repeat myself, I threw this idea out there at the time that communication can be quite dangerous. And um, our guest, Shane and, and Shelley, kind of both looked at me and went, ooh, what do you mean by communication can be dangerous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, it was this idea that, well, often when we're communicating, Shelley used the word high stakes, it mm. can feel for the individual particularly in the workplace, there's day-to-day communication, but there's often communication in the workplace that I'm about to put myself out there or I'm about Mm. to put something on the line or there could be rejection on the other end of this. Mm. Uh, But also, I guess, particularly where the word dangerous comes from for me is this idea that when you communicate with other humans, there is a risk that they will misunderstand or misinterpret what you say and you could end up, um, and I'm being, you know, probably leaning to the negative just for the interesting conversation, but you could actually end up hurting that person or um, sacrificing something or missing out or losing something. And so I think a lot of responsibility comes with communication because you can read a textbook and it can say a good leader or a good employee communicates clearly, but that is so tricky. It's so much easier said than done. No, totally. So one of the things that um, I have been taught and have been able to use and was really, really important was to understand that expertise without empathy is useless. So you might think you know something, but if you don't have the ability to place that knowing um, into the space between you and another and you're very kind of almost arrogantly pushing your opinion into the space between you and the other. It, it doesn't work. And I think this goes back to what Shelley was talking about. Like you called her out, Em, and said like it was like the go there, just have the damn conversation. It's like because when, fa- when you turn and you face a problem or a challenge, we know that it diminishes uh, as it becomes less. And this is why phobias are a problem is, is we don't. And part of the phobia treatment is to actually exaggerate, like let's say you're afraid of spiders, you would exaggerate them into cartoons and down into black and white and really, really small and really, really giant. And you do all of this process of 
sort of disassociating and kind of turning and facing the, the thing, which is at the heart of, I think, um, Shell's book. So, but for me, it's probably worth understanding that problems, and this is, this is what I would call an empathy map, um, M, which is if you've thought long and hard about something, the problem you're addressing is probably three or four orders of magnitude away from the way the person's experiencing it. So a good example in small business, let's say you were a coach and you coach small business and you wanted to come in and, you, and you, your job, the thing you knew is business owners are focused on turnover and it's ridiculous. They should be focused on take home because very few businesses are successfully sold. Now, that's not to say you can't sell a business, but the stats are they don't. So a lot of people start small business, they pay themselves less, and what they end up doing at the end of 10 years is they've got nothing to show for it and they can't sell the damn thing. And what they would be better off doing is having a high take-home and shoving the money in assets behind their back. So put them in property, put them in anything that's capital growth and high yield, right? So, But if you come into a small business owner who's going, I don't have cash flow, my staff are unreliable and I haven't taken a holiday in three years. Do you see those three problems are where they're at? Thinking about take-home and turnover is not where they're at. Mm. And so you're right, communication is dangerous. And when it's high stakes, I think what you want to do is you want to step through the problems, if we use the negative filter, or their aspirations from, you know, what do we all agree is a, is a recurring problem that I might have as a small business owner? It's cash flow. I need more sales. What's my second problem? Well, it's staff and getting good people turning up and doing their work. You know, just think of any of your friends who run cafes, right? Um, and then the third one would be, uh, and I haven't taken a holiday in three years, so it's about time. And you have that conversation before you have the conversation about you're not going to be able to sell your business, Tiger, so you better put it in property. And you can't. it's just too rude to, to go into that conversation if you haven't mapped empathetically the journey to that conversation in a way that respects where that person's at. And I think conviction really needs compassion. And what you want to do is you start really compassionate. And then in your communication, then what you'll find is you can then move towards the conviction. But that compassion helps you meet people where they're at. And 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 I think that maybe lowers the risk of the high stakes conversations. Now, it doesn't guarantee you're going to get there, but at least as far as your orientation goes, mm. it's much nicer, isn't it? Don't you think? Just come mm. from compassion, not not from certainty. Just hang on a sec. Uh, do you want, it's like that classic saying, do you want to be right or happy? Um, mm. And, you know, I think a lot of us are a bit righteous and uh, we're not willing to meet people where they're at. I love that so much, the conviction and compassion. So one of the things that I see when people come to, like say they, they're wanting to have a conversation with their leader about um, something that they're frustrated in in their work context and they've got this really strong conviction of, you know what, this colleague that I'm working with is an absolute dickhead yeah, and they need to leave or whatever it is, whatever the scenario is, I'm sure everyone can think of an example of this and they've got a strong conviction but they don't have the compassion and I love even that you're using like the term empathy. And one of the things I noticed about how you communicate, Matt, is even before these episodes when we're chatting with you, you you're saying, oh, I just want to be of service to your audience. You've got this empathy for the audience. You you care about the audience, the listeners, um, I guess, experience. And I think one of the things in conversations that can be detrimental is you don't have that empathy for the listener. Yeah. 
And so then you've gone into a conversation really driven by your own needs yeah. but haven't stopped to think what is that person yeah. feeling, needing, wanting out of this conversation? What's your take on having empathy for, for your audience or how do you get to know your audience? For me, it goes back to that thing we were talking about, about the three moments in an interview, right? There's, there's what's going on for you, there's what's going on for them and there's what's going between that. And I think that one of the things you want to do, and you've just nailed it so perfectly, Shell, which is don't just come in with what's going on for you. And if I wanted to negotiate effectively the old model of win-lose says I'm just going to come in and I'm going to get what I want and get out. When what we know is win-win goes, well, you've got to be able to sit in the space of could we create something better? And that in your agenda of a negotiation, it's not the transactional dispute of compromise. I win, you lose, you lose, I win, and let's make sure I have more wins and less losses and therefore I've won. It's like, come on. Um, what it's actually about is can we co-create something better than what we're currently experiencing? And you can't do that if the only responsibility or, or place you centre yourself in is self do you know what I mean? That's why it's, you know, to be fully self-expressed in service to others and rewarded for the contribution. You miss any, because there's a lot of people that are self-expressed in service and they're broke, you know, uh, or or whatever. So it's, 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 and I think you'll notice everything I do is in threes. And if you haven't picked it up just yet, it, it's because the fundamental belief in non-duality and that whenever we set things up as binary, you referenced Jim Collins um, 10 minutes ago, uh, Shell, and in his book, Good to Great, there's a chapter called The Tyranny of the Awe. And it's it's almost like that moment in communication where you stop saying but, because when I say but, it basically elites, it, you know, deletes everything else. You two are fantastic, but I think you should, you know, it's like, <laughs> thanks. I didn't hear anything, you know, before the but. And, and awe sets me up as it's this or that, you know, either you clean your room or you're grounded. And they go, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. There is something called and also. And when you can create a third choice in pretty much everything, you break the deadlock of dogma and doctrine. And the generation that your show represents, for me, are the poster children, they are the poster child of don't tell me what to do. They are the poster child of oppositional defiance disorder. And I think that's a good thing. Because I think for too long, systems, institutions and structures have controlled the agency of individuals. Now, there's no doubt as a society we have to all work together, but we shouldn't be suppressing the sovereignty or agency of any individual. Um, and whether that's BLM or whether that's Me Too or whether that's any other damn version of what you want to pick up uh, on the planet at the moment, the reason why there is outrage, the reason why there is movement is that the individuals are starting to be agents in the arena and that you're, the generation you represent are agents and they're not willing to accept the rules of the arena. And it's like, yeah, come on, giddy up, let's do that. It's exactly what the world needs right now. I was sort of going down and, you know, this negative lens of communication being dangerous and considering, well, what could go wrong if you turn up for that conversation? But I would like to also go on the record as a glass half full girl and say that communication and conversation can also be really powerful and it's been nice to end up in a place talking about that. Matt, you mentioned thought leadership and I'd actually like to go back there if we can and spend a bit more time hearing from you on thought leadership because... I think so many of us 
might have some awareness of what that could mean, but we're likely to go, oh, isn't that the Tony Robbins or the Matt Church of the world or these beautiful authors that we've been referencing and not think that that could possibly be us? And yet earlier... Well, first, this- first of all, in 15 minutes, we've identified three books that you beautiful authors should write. So, <laughs> And we haven't even scraped the surface. So, so yeah, I'd love to go back to here, but I interrupted you. Um, Sorry, Em. No, that's fine. Um, but I guess where I'm going is I'd love to try and find a way to open the minds of our yeah. listeners and perhaps ourselves as well to how we could all be thought leaders. And there is actually relevance, I really strongly believe, in being a thought leader, working towards that as somebody in your 20s, as somebody in your 30s totally. building a career? Well, well, you absolutely need it. Like thought leadership is yeah. not a 60-year-old or a 50-year-old perspective. It's like it's we've got ageism, we've got sexism, we've got racism, um, but this demographicism, the idea that, yeah, you know, the ageism part is in reverse where we say 20-year-olds don't have anything to contribute. You go, are you for real? The 20-year-old mm. perspective um, it's, it's all about lenses. So, yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to have a conversation on this. And I think yep. we are absolutely right to empower the audience to not wait. Don't wait to no. share your thoughts on matters. Right now, what you have to say matters and the world needs to hear it because every, um, and I don't care if it's a 15-year-old, is, is that it, this thought leadership is not ageist. So I can be 70 and be a thought leader and I can be 17 and be a thought leader. And I, I would want to encourage people to remove the restrictions of age around insight because insight doesn't care how young or old you are. Insight's insight. And um, anyway, so you, you were saying, let's talk about it a little oh, bit. Did you want to add another yeah, layer to it? Yeah, I'd love to. Oh, the only thing I was about to say was uh, I have heard uh, some of your thoughts on thought leadership before and it was this idea of, Sure, you might read something or you might listen to something and you might agree or maybe you won't, you'll take something from it, but being more intentional when you're reading or listening so you're actually determining, well, do I agree, do I disagree? If I disagree, what is my disagreement? And then also what could I add to that? Um, so perhaps if you don't mind yeah, doing yeah. a better job than me of explaining what you I just tried job. to. No, you did a great <laughs> job. You did a great job. I think, I think the, f- the first mistake that we all make, including 50-year-olds, is we think that our, our ideas have to be original. And, in fact, that's not the smartest way to get there. What they need to do is they need to be useful, not original. And the, the desire to be terminally unique and differentiated in the world is what is not the goal. The goal is to be useful in the world. So your first thing is just go, what am I interested in? So let's say having tough conversations is something Shelley's interested in. She starts a podcast called Having Tough Conversations and then she starts meeting people who are good at having tough conversations and she just basically, it's like when you say I'm going to buy a red car, all you see is red cars. So she basically puts it firmly in her reticular activation zone where she goes, I'm looking for anybody who's got anything to contribute and she, she becomes a curator um, which is step number one. Just start gathering stuff. Jump on YouTube. Um, I get excuse mail and team, but jump on YouTube, watch a video and create a playlist and just 
add that video to your playlist and the playlist is because each of you have you know we've got the career self-reliance playlist on youtube m we've got the your career as a business there's a playlist that we should have under your channel and shell we should have a playlist called go there um uh which is just have the damn conversation okay so in your playlist on just have the damn conversation you would um find therapists uh uh, who talk on uh, the, the dealing with difficult people. We'd have the narcissist angle. We'd have the no asshole rule. There's all these books. And, you know, even if all you did was did a book review and posted it up, that could be your contribution, right? But, but all you're doing is curating content, step one. Step two, propagate, which is just start, like I've done today, I've referenced Stephen Covey, I've referenced Annie Duke, I've referenced Byron Katie, and what I'm doing is I'm propagating thinkers. So I'm going, these people are something you could read and look at that are related to the field of discussion that we're having. So it's like promote someone else. The third stage is to aggregate, right? So if I'm, a, if I'm just collecting it all, that's what curating is and putting it somewhere. If I'm propagating, I'm pushing out to the world going, hey, check this out. If I'm aggregating, what I'm doing is I'm going, James Clear in his book Atomic Habits says this, Professor Fogg, in his research on um, tiny habits, says this, I reckon if teens are trying to change their behaviour, they should do this. So what you do is you take the content that has been, like you stand on the shoulders of giants, you attribute it perfectly, and you go, this plus this equals my conclusion. And so your thought leadership is stimulated by good work. And this is what an academic literature review is, right? So just do a lit review and then go, now what do you think? It's just you don't have to do it in an academic institution. And then the fourth stage, and this is where everyone stuffs up, is they try to go here, is you then create unique perspectives. And um, all my books are digitally free and people can download them. So uh, they can just go to my website, mattchurch.com, and go to the Books tab. And there's a, all my books are colour-coded like jelly beans. So the pink, so one, the pink one talks about... How, to, how you develop your unique insights. So it's like do the first three stages and then figure out how to capture what you know and package it up in a way that can be commercially successful. And I reckon that, that's maybe we just stop there as a, as a framework for how people access this idea of thought leadership. And it, but it really boils down to believing that you doing some work in this area matters. And I love that you are both thought leaders very clearly to me, whether you see yourself as such, and that doing the podcast is a lived example of that. And each of these channels or these playlist sections that might be on your hypothetical or metaphoric YouTube channel is one of the ways you just begin to do this. It's so helpful and practical to go first curate, propagate, and then we aggregate because I'm so with you on – I like. I would love one day to write a book about how to, how to have like healthy and effective conversations, but I go exactly where you said, unique perspective. Mm. Whereas you're saying, come right back. There's actually these really practical ways to go about it before you get to that end point. So I love that, Matt. And I'm definitely going to jump on after this and download the Think book, which is the pink one. Yeah. And I saw you waving it around. <laughs> we'll have that in the show notes as well because – I think so many of our listeners need to become thought leaders. We talked earlier about even that gig economy where we're moving yeah. more to totally. consultants and, and I think... I was thinking about knowledge-based roles, so so much more, mm. uh, I guess, 
employment and career opportunity is coming from knowledge and yet knowledge moves and changes so quickly. So to keep up with that, um, you don't have to just go to uni, for example. You don't have to go into those formal institutions. You can actually keep your mind sharp and remain at the forefront of whatever your expertise is throughout your career. And for me, that creates this sense of career security over time as well. Totally. If you can stay up to speed. Imagine if on LinkedIn you weren't just connecting with others, you were also sharing insights, um, you know, and you just basically said, hey, I just read this book the other day. This line really resonated, so that's curating and propagating. And you go, and it got me thinking about how that fits in IT and the challenge we have around systems network and complex adaptive networks. So powerful. My question for anybody who's listening is, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? And then all of a sudden, you know, what we were talking about, M, which is the whole de- declaration, instruction and questioning, the whole exclamation mark, bullet point, question mark, as, as that's what communication is. If you, if you organised a post on LinkedIn that did that, you are starting to be a thought leader. Um, now, the question you've got to ask yourself is, do I have the courage? Do I have the, am I willing to do that? Because it is, a, it is a moment of courage. And this is why I think, Em, you were talking about like the high stakesedness and Shell, um, it was the same in, in that technical moment that no one will even know, um, <laughs> was, was exact, exactly this, is it takes, it take, like even just to go there, right, there is this moment of bravery. And I love the work that Brene Brown does on um, Daring Greatly and she's written a book on that and a TED Talk and she's got a Netflix special. So really accessible for people to, to tune in. I'm sure that's not the first time anyone's referenced her on your show. But th- this whole idea of there is, a, there is courage is the tipping point in what we call line theory. So line theory is Maslow's hierarchy of needs and a million others, Gebster, Fowler, stages of faith, integral theory. There's other more academic versions. But it basically says there's this line, and this is probably a good place for us to sort of tie up today, is there's this line of intent, right? And you know whether you're above or below the line. So if I said in your personal health right now, whether thumbs up, a thumbs on the middle or a thumbs down, how are you both going? Personal health, thumbs up, thumbs middle, thumbs down. Where are you at? I got an up and a middle, and I'm not going to tell you who. <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like, uh, yeah. I, I love this idea. I actually have um, a wonderful boss who I don't work directly for right now. Still in the same organisation, and we got in the habit. Well, he got in the habit of asking me every now and then, "Where are you at on the line?" And that was yeah. just a really non-confrontational, caring and compassionate way for him to check in, and yeah. for me to very easily be able to say, "I'm good," or. Maybe I'm not so good today, but it wasn't static and yeah. It isn't static and that's exactly right. And line theory has been around forever, right? So um, if anybody's done an LSI uh, sort of profiling through Synergistics International, it's built on line theory. And it's it's if you said what is the line's tipping point, define the line, it's about courage and responsibility and agency, all the things we've been talking about. You're below the line when you abdicate responsibility. You're above the line when you activate it. And when that doesn't mean you don't go below the line because we could say in your sort of core relationships, how are you going at the moment? At family, how are you going at the moment? You know, in, from a personal wealth point of view, how are you going? In your career, how are you going? And it's, it's exactly what you said, Em, which is just a, a gentle way for you to without anybody telling you you're below the line or without any agenda, they're just legitimately going, How, where are you at? And you get to go, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm above the line. You know, from a work point of view, how are you? You go, yeah, I'm good. I'm above the line. Okay, anywhere you're below the line. And you go, yeah, actually, I'm having a bit of trouble at home. And you go, do you want to go mm. for a walk? And you have a walk and a talk about that. 
and your job is not to fix it because my job is not to tell you where your line is or to help you get above the line. My job is just to be there while you have the courage to talk about and then choose what your response is going to be in a given set of circumstances. And I guess, you know, we started saying that my, my game is leadership. And so if I was to leave a message for any of the listeners who are driving their careers, it would be to realise that everybody is a leader and that leadership is not a positional thing. It's not you in an org chart. It's how you're showing up. It's about energy and that it, it's not about um, a triangle structure with someone at the top. Uh, that it's more about a circle structure with you firmly seated in the middle and realising that you are the energetic centre of what's happening around you. And when, when you choose that, I think what you're starting to do is control your career, control your life, uh, your self-authoring, and when you do it in service to others, that's self-expressed in service to others, and you get rewarded. You do. Because um, people who operate like that above the line more often get promoted, uh, get paid more, uh, uh, get to choose and leave careers and start new ones, and get to really create lives of meaning and significance. Wow. I know. We just, Shell and I just looked at each other and went, oh, who's going to talk uh, first? And I think we both wanted to say wow. And the only other thing I can uh, am thinking right now is I can't wait to listen back to this. But if you are listening for the first time, I feel like when you get to the end, go back and listen again mm-hmm. because so much of what we've talked about has, there's just so much connection. And I won't repeat that. I mean, people will find themes and connection through all of the concepts and practical takeaways that we've talked about but oh. this has just been wonderful we, we didn't really know where we were going to go with this conversation we agreed that we would all wing it to some extent and I had no doubt it would be successful but it really has been so Matt thank you so much my pleasure and and to speak into that um just to call out and acknowledge what you two are doing uh is you're leading and these things don't happen without people like you being willing to have a crack. And there's a world of outrage and trolling and all kinds of things that happen, but um, you matter. What you're doing really, really matters and keep being extraordinary leaders in the world. Thank you so much, Matt. We're just really grateful for your time today. We've really enjoyed this conversation and I I was annoyed I didn't bring my paper because I always type and I'm such a loud typer and all I wanted to do was type what you were saying. I'm like, I can listen back. I was going to say, I've got some good news for you, Shell. I know, I know. I was like, just calm down. Just wait till it comes out and you can can listen back to it all. Matt, how do our um, listeners find out more about you? You mentioned your website before. Can you just kind of... um, Give yeah, us yeah, a bit more detail about that. Look, I'm a bit I'm a bit unsocial on social media. So the best place is my two websites. So you can go to mattchurch.com and that's all my leadership development work. But your audience is probably interested in the books. So you just go to the books tab and you can download those. Uh, then if you were interested in being a speaker or a coach or a trainer or heading out and making money selling your thoughts and you'd like to figure out how to do that, you go to Thought Leaders com.au and you can start learning about what we do there helping people capture package and and share their ideas in a thought leaders consulting practice beautiful love it and we're really excited to re- release this and we're excited to keep the conversation going with you matt thank you so much for your time today it's been a real pleasure thank you both We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.